Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to the Totally Driven Entertainment Radio Network. In the future, none of you are heroes. You're legends. Get driven. Stay driven. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bareback Facts. And today, I'm going to cover something that I really personally take a real pleasure in covering. Uh, Today, I'm going to be talking about lycanthropy and werewolves, where the idea of these things come from uh, in particular, and the differences between lichens and werewolves specifically. We're going to trace back their origins quite a long ways, particularly though we're going to stick with with it in a European context. Uh, because the European history behind werewolves is just absolutely fascinating uh, and, and tremendously rich, uh, and there'll be more than enough there for us to to have fun with. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, first, we want to go ahead and define what a werewolf is and what a lichen is. Now, for those of you uh, who are familiar with you know the horror genre films and action movies such as Underworld, romantic movies such as Twilight, you're probably fairly familiar with what a werewolf is. A werewolf is an individual who changes into a wolf. It's a person who can change into a wolf. A lichen, however, is a bit different. A lichen is a person who can change into a wolf at will. What's the difference? Werewolves don't have a choice but to change into a wolf. They are uh, cursed individuals uh, and whatever, what, in, in some way, they have been cursed. Uh, and by this curse, they have no choice. Every new full moon, they shed their human skin and they become werewolves. Uh, and they are forced to uh, join the wild hunt. Um, now, across Europe, uh, and in particular, uh, if we look at Greece, uh, there are a number of ways in which a person could become a werewolf. Uh, now, traditionally, in the Greek context, uh, people could become werewolves by eating the meat of a wolf that had been mixed with that of a human. Uh, it was thought then that the condition of this was a, now, it was irreversible. Now, centuries later, there are said to be other methods uh, spread throughout Europe, particularly in Germany, uh, particularly uh, in Hungary, in which a person uh, would be cursed by being conceived under a new moon or by having eaten certain herbs or by sleeping under the full moon on a Friday. Uh, other ways include by, be, by drinking water that has been touched by a wolf, uh, laying with a wolf, uh, or eventually being bitten by another wolf who is already a werewolf. Uh, so uh, by this, werewolves are cursed uh, to turn into wolves by the light of the full moon. They have no choice. Uh, they have no uh, control over the change. Lichens, however, are different. Lichens have the ability to change at will. These are what we would consider to be skin changers. These are individuals uh, oftentimes associated with, with black magic, 
uh, in the European context specifically, particularly in Germany and France. Uh, these are people who were believed to practice witchcraft, uh, and they could change into a wolf at will. Uh, in addition, uh, according to most stories that we have about werewolves and lichens, lichens are taller, they're bigger, they're deeper in the chest than werewolves would be, uh, whereas werewolves tend to be more dog-like. Lichens tend to be more or less like bears. Uh, they're huge uh, in, in many descriptions of them. Uh, but the two can often become conflated. So where then, however, do we get this idea of people being able to change into animals? Well, as I've already stated, uh, there are various uh, different cultural contexts for this, uh, particularly in Greece, Hungary, and Germany. Uh, there are different ways in which a person could become a werewolf. However, or a lichen, for that matter, uh, by using black magic or uh, a combination of potions, one could become a lichen. However, the story of werewolves in Europe can be traced back incredibly far, can be traced back quite a distance to the time of the Romans. Uh, now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Roman Empire, it was a, it's one of the most vast empires uh, the world has ever known. Uh, the Roman Empire spanned such a distance <laughs> that it, it's literally, it, it literally spanned from Central Europe all the way uh, to the far eastern reaches of what we would now denote to be the Middle East. So it was quite vast, quite a large empire. Now, during the height of the German Empire, uh, they had begun to expand into Central Europe, and they had reached what we would now denote as being uh, the area of Germany and Austria. Once they reached this point, the Romans believed fully uh, that they were invincible. Now, granted, they had already kind of gone around. Now, this is during a time in which the Romans had already kind of been to the islands of, Isles of Britain, uh, in, in, in some cases, uh, according to some accounts. But at this point, they've already, they've already fought their way quite, quite a ways into Europe. They've beaten back the Gauls. They've beaten back many of the Gothic tribes. Uh, they've even had a few run-ins with some of the Huns and the like. The Romans, they feel pretty good. Why is this relevant to what we're talking about? Well, it just so happens that there is a very famous battle that many historians today cite as being the birthplace of the werewolf legends in Germany and in many parts of Europe. There is an incredibly famous battle called the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. And I'm going to regale you all with a story, with a tale of a glorious battle, a terrifying scenario in which some of the world's most elite soldiers find themselves cornered in the woods with an enemy they cannot see, slowly being picked apart over the course of a few days before finally finding themselves cornered like rats, surrounded and summarily killed down to the last man. How did this happen? This is the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. Now, between the years 6 BC and AD 4, Roman legions had mounted many repeated incursions into the tribal lands of what they had called the Germanic frontier. They had eventually established a chain of bases along uh, on the Lippe and Wessa rivers, and in time, 
growing resentment of the Roman presence, the tribes uh, it began to exchange iron, cattle, slaves, and foodstuffs for Roman gold and silver coins, luxury goods. Uh, some of these Germanic tribes would even swear their allegiance to Rome. German mercenaries uh, often served with the Roman armies as far away as present-day uh, Czech Republic. Now, one such soldier of fortune who's going to cut his teeth and add to this legend of the wolf was named Arminius. Now, Arminius was a 25-year-old prince of the Cherushi tribe. Uh, now, his tribal name has been lost to history. No, no uh, written record of his name can be found, but the Romans know him as Arminius. He spoke Latin, was very familiar with the Roman tactics, and he was the kind of man that Romans had come to rely upon uh, to help their armies penetrate into the lands of who they believed to be barbarians. Uh, for his valor on the field in battle, uh, Arminius had been awarded the rank of knight and the honor of Roman citizenship, and, be, and it had a great deal of trust placed in him. He was considered to be an, ambas- an ambassador of the Roman Empire to these Germanic of this year. He and his mounted auxiliaries were deputized to march ahead and rally some of his own tribesmen to help in putting down a rebellion. What the Romans did not know is that Arminius actually started this rebellion and was actually going to get the rest of his tribe on board. Now, while most of Arminius's motives are obscure, many historians believe that he had long harbored dreams of becoming the king of his tribe, and to achieve his goal, he had concocted a brilliant deception that he would report a fictitious uprising in a territory unfamiliar to the Romans and then lead them into a trap in which he would annihilate their army. A rival chieftain named Segestus repeatedly warned the head of the Roman army in this area that Arminius was a traitor, but the commander ignored him. He believed that the Romans could not be defeated in battle uh, and saw no reason to, see, to, to suspect that Arminius could ever betray him after everything that the Romans had done for him. Now, Arminius had instructed the Romans to make what he had described as a short detour, a one- or two-day march into the territory of the so-called rebels. Now, the legionnaires followed along, a rud- along rudimentary trails that meandered among the Germans' farmsteads and fields, pastures, bogs, and forests. And as they progressed, the line of Roman troops, already seven or eight miles long at this point, including local auxiliaries, camp followers, and the usual tag-alongs for armies became dangerously extended and spread out. Third-century historian Cassius Dio said that the men were having a hard time of it, felling trees, building roads, and bridging the places that required it. Meanwhile, Arminius, while leading them into this trap, had another stroke of luck. Violent rains and storms began to separate the army further. The, The area became slippery, It made walking very treacherous, and the tops of the trees kept breaking and falling down, causing much confusion amongst the army, further separating them. Now, while the Romans were in such difficulties, the barbarians suddenly began to surround them on all sides, launching javelins from a distance in the night and at times carrying off men in the night screaming. The Roman troops would wake up to find their comrades missing, 
would wake up in a start to the sound of flying javelins, to the sound of screams and roars, the likes of which they had not heard before. In the dark of these woods, they believed fully that they were being beset by beasts. And not once in these nights were able to lay an eye on any of those who had attacked them. This was but the first of three nights. They realized that they had to mount a defensive position. They had to gain some kind of order. Their army had been scattered. So in many places along this, along this route they were taking, they began assembling what barricades they could to halt the night. But with each time that the nightfall fell within the deep, dark, two-to-board woods, men covered in fur, screaming battle cries would startle them awake and attack them, forcing the legionnaires to split from their ranks, forcing them out of their disciplined formations in a panic, and allowing these Germanic troops to essentially wipe them out wholesale. Finally, after days of hit-and-run tactics, Many men going missing, some outright deserting. The general knew that there was no escape. Rather than face torture at the hands of the Germans, he chose suicide and fell on his sword as Roman tradition prescribed. Most of his commanders would follow suit, leaving their troops leaderless in what became a killing field. An army unexcelled in bravery, the first of the Roman armies in discipline, in energy, and inexperience in the field, Through the negligence of its general, the perfidy of the enemy and the unkindness of fortune was exterminated almost to a man by the enemy whom it had always slaughtered like cattle, according to an account of Valesius Patriculus, a retired military officer uh, who might uh, have very well known uh, both the general and Arminius. Now, somehow, a small handful of survivors managed to escape into the forest, and they made their way to safety. Uh, The news that they brought the Romans shocked them to their core. Not only did they discuss the fact that they were decimated, for the first time their armies had absolutely been destroyed in the field of battle, but also they told stories of men dressed like wolves and bears seizing men in the night and carrying off their corpses to feed on them in the night. Now, while it is very unlikely that the Roman troops were devoured by these, by these Germanic soldiers, we do find a beautiful kernel of truth within them. Because it is well known by German, German, German historians that there were a very specific type of soldier within the Germanic tribes at this time to as berserkers. And they were not the only uh, warriors of this nature to exist, but these men uh, were also accompanied by the Ulf Hefnar, uh, or wolf hides, and the berserkers, of course, uh, roughly translates to bear shirts, uh, often thought that these men uh, fought actually with no clothing 
but now uh, many historians suggest that they actually fought covered in the fur of animals uh, and that killing such an animal uh, was a way of taking on the power of that animal. So within Norse mythology, there is the belief that certain animals uh, became totems, uh, and usually they were a bear or a wolf. And within the context of, of these elite soldiers, it was believed that by killing these creatures and wearing a part of them, they could take on the qualities of these animals ferociously in battle to gain more skill. One would kill a wolf and wear its fur to gain agility or cunning or strength or courage. One would kill a bear to gain uh, power, gain honor, gain strength, uh, and take on these qualities. Uh, to, and, and it was also well noted amongst those who witnessed the berserkers fight that the berserkers fought like madmen, frenzied, oftentimes biting their shields and hacking their own shields to pieces uh, in a rage uh, to intimidate their enemy. It is from this that many historians and folklorists alike have said that perhaps we find, at least within Europe, at least amongst the Germans and the Italians, the true source of the werewolf legends in a dark forest in, in an ancient land where men fell prey to men dressed as beasts. Now, I tell you this story to give you guys a little taste of what many people believe to be the first instance in which werewolves are referenced uh, within the European context. And there's a good deal of information on this battle. It's a very fascinating battle. Uh, and one that changed the fortunes of the Roman Empire. But we're talking about werewolves. And I brought this battle up to link the two together, to give you an idea of how far back these stories go. They go back to an ancient time. And so as we continue forward, keep in mind that werewolves, or at least the story of werewolves, have been around far longer um, than many people would say, would believe. Now, uh, as we return to werewolves uh, specifically, werewolves are now known to be, and assumed to be mythical creatures, uh, found in fiction instead of lurking in the dark woods. Uh, but that's not always been the case. As I said, not long ago, uh, werewolf, belief in werewolves was incredibly common. Uh, overall, there was little difference between the killings and activities of wolves and werewolves. Uh, both would hunt at night, attacking sheep or livestock, and sometimes humans. Uh, the main difference, of course, is that the werewolf changed into a human at some point. Uh, same thing with the lichen, of course, although through different means. Um, now, we now know today that there are several medical conditions that can mimic the appearance of a werewolf and may have contributed to early beliefs in the literal, exist literal existence of these creatures. One is called hypertrichosis, uh, which creates unusually long hair on the face and body. Uh, a second condition is called porphyria, uh, and it is characterized by extreme sensitivity to light, uh, thus encouraging its victims to only go out at night, uh, seizures, anxiety, and other symptoms. Uh, neither of these are rare conditions. Uh, turn, neither of these rare conditions turns anybody into a werewolf, I should say, of course, but centuries ago, uh, people, of course, would not have known that uh, necessarily. Now, 
Clinical lycanthropy, oddly enough, is is a recognized medical condition in which a person believes himself or herself to be an animal. And indeed, uh, there are several rare cases where where people have claimed to be werewolves. Uh, In 1589, a German man named Peter Stubb claimed to own a belt of wolf skin that allowed him to change into a wolf. His body would bend into a lupine form, his teeth would multiply in his mouth, and he craved human blood. Now, this is according to him. Uh, Stubb claimed to have killed at least a dozen people over the span of 25 years, uh, though uh, his confession was made under the duress of torture, including having uh, several chunks of his flesh ripped out with heated pincers and his limbs being crushed with stones. Uh, He was later actually decapitated on Halloween in 1589, uh, and his headless body was burned at the stake, uh, and there's no real evidence of his crimes other than his confession Uh, However, it seems likely that Stubb was mentally ill or delusional. Uh, He's far from alone, however. In the Middle Ages, werewolves were thought to be mostly created by witches. Again, I mentioned uh, that black magic was often associated with werewolves. Just as tens of thousands of accused witches were put to death, usually in gruesome and sadistic ways, tens of thousands of accused werewolves were similarly dispatched. Now, because lycanthropy lycanthropy is seen as a curse, werewolves were often thought of as victims uh, as much as villains, uh, lichens and werewolves alike. Uh, the transformation from man to wolf was said to be torturous, uh, and many sought cures for, uh, for real and imagined symptoms. Now, traditionally, uh, there are three ways in which a werewolf can be scourged of his demons, according to Ian Woodward in The Werewolf Delusion. Uh, he may be cured medicinally and surgically. He may be exercised by a priest, and the most drastic, he may be shot with a silver bullet. Uh, so when the medicinal and surgical cures were attempted, they involved lots of bloodletting, vomiting, and vinegar drinking. Uh, so severe and brutal were the cures advocated by early medical practitioners that not surprisingly a great many werewolf patients died by the hands of those who promised them salvation. As it happens, uh, in many cases, when we attempt to treat things we don't actually understand, uh, you, people tend to die. Now, while werewolves are the best-known shapeshifters, they were not the only were-animals said to exist. Uh, We won't get into all the different ones. Of course, there were were-bears, were-hares, were-snakes, and so, and what have you. But uh, I want to switch gears. I want to talk to you guys about another very interesting story uh, that comes specifically from Germany. Uh, and it's the story of the Morbach monster. Now, Morbach was a munition site outside of the village of Bitlick. Uh, it's a. It, this is a very interesting story. Ends with a graveyard. So we'll, we'll this. And this comes from a report, by the way, from the University of Pittsburgh, uh, research done um, specifically, let me pull up his name again, uh, by D.L. Ashleman, University of Pittsburgh. Now, the Moorbach monster uh, has very ancient roots. Now, sightings of werewolves in the town of Witzlick, Germany, have gone on for hundreds of years. Uh, and there's one werewolf in particular that brings fame to this otherwise un, re- really not very 
the werewolf is famously known as the Morbach monster or monster von Morbach and is believed to be a weir- a, an actual authentic werewolf local to the area. You know, stories and local legends of the Morbach monster say that the story goes back to a deserter from Napoleon's army who was fleeing with a group of Russians and they go to the town of Whitlick. Although there have been some that say the town is actually uh, in a garrison in Germany. Uh, while in the small town, one of the soldiers, a man by the name of Thomas Johannes Baptiste Switzer, attacks and kills a farmer and the farmer's wife. What a name on the guy, as if he wasn't already a jerk. He's got kind of a jerk name, uh, kind of a long name. Maybe that's why he killed them. Probably couldn't pronounce his name. Uh, before he kills the wife, however, the wife has enough time, according to the tale, to curse the soldier in becoming a werewolf on the night of each full moon. Uh, as a werewolf, he is evil, vicious, and attacks people at his leisure, eventually causing the villagers to track him down, capture him, and destroy him. Uh, the villagers then set, set up a shrine at the site with a lit candle that they now burn on the night of each full moon. And legend holds that as long as the candle burns, the werewolf will not, be tr- be, will not ever return. Now, if we fast forward to near present day in 1988, where a group of U.S. military men are stationed at nearby Morbach U.S. Air Force Base in Germany, they know of the legends and that there is always a candle lit in the shrine on the night of the full moon. Supposedly, they see that the candle in the shrine has burnt out, and they joked about it, and to their surprise, later that night, a large creature resembling an upright wolf is spotted. When they go out searching, uh, the military tracking dog clearly smells something but absolutely refuses to pursue it. Uh, many believe that the coincidence is just too great and that the creature was the spot, that they spotted was the infamous real werewolf, the Morbach monster. Now, this shrine does, in fact, exist outside Vitlik. Uh, there is a shrine to it, and they do light a candle uh, on the night of the full moon there. Uh, it is tradition to do so. They do it. They've been doing it for a very long time. Uh, but impressive that this story has been around for so long, over 200 years, uh, and the people of of this area of Vitlik are still telling this story about the Morbach monster. Quite, and, and you know, other, in, in this small town, it's an otherwise you know, kind of under-the-radar town. Nobody really, you know, you wouldn't really think about going here, but Uh, It's one of those things where, you know, a story can oftentimes make all the difference. And there's – now, while many people would say, oh, well, they just made up that story to spook the tourists. Uh, They just – you know, it's just a tourist attraction to get people to come to an otherwise unnoteworthy town. Uh, You know what? Maybe fair point. But I think it's important to note that the story has been around for over 200 years. And while that doesn't mean that there was, in fact, a werewolf, it does mean that the tradition of werewolves is incredible. It does further prove my point that the tradition of werewolves in Europe, particularly in Germany, is incredibly rich. Uh, it's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. To see a story that's been around since the time of Napoleon uh, still be around, still being told today, and still have a profound impact on this community is impressive. It speaks to the lasting nature of the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Um, you know, one of the things that I have often said about mythology and religion, both, uh, and, and folklore to a greater degree as well, 
is that these are the big stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And what do these stories tell us? Well, in, in this scenario, I think in the case of werewolves, and particularly in this case, uh, Witzlick werewolf or the Morbach monster, whichever you'd like to refer to it as, we have a story uh, that was most likely told as a campfire-esque story uh, to entertain and, and, you know, serve as a, as a social, the kids in at night, keep them from messing around uh, in fields and damaging crops and the like. But it takes on a life of its own, right? Becomes part of the community, becomes people tell a story long enough that they believe it. And what does that tell us about us? It tells us that we as people are constantly looking for something to believe in. We want to believe in something. Uh, and why not werewolves? Right? Why not? Why not? Um, and in this case, uh, so this this story is such a good story. Such a uh, it's got everything, right? It's got the uh, got the forward and soldier. It's got um, the guy who doesn't treat the common man, you know, well, uh, and he gets his just desserts and he's brought to justice for his crimes. It's got a little bit of everything there, right? quite a good story and and these are not the only ones we have a lot of werewolf stories uh just in germany Uh, we have the werewolf of yarnitz it was claimed in the vicinity of yarnitz which is a small uh small town on the island uh of rugen in the baltic sea uh they claimed that there was a werewolf who had the ability to transform himself into all kinds of shapes, different shapes and sizes, uh, spent the nights stealing sheep from their enclosures, where in those days sheep were kept at night enclosures in open fields. Uh, for several nights in a row, the shepherd, armed with a loaded gun, had kept watch for the night robber, and had already hit the werewolf several times, as he'd clearly seen him, but the bullets have done him no harm uh, and would escape with a sheep every time. The shepherd then loaded his gun with bullets made from inherited silver, which never fail. And thus, this time, he would be successful. Following his custom, the werewolf appeared. And while he was approaching the enclosure, he immediately sensed that this time the shepherd might do him in. Therefore, he quickly turned himself into a human, walked up to the shepherd, and said to him in a familiar tone, You don't have to shoot me dead. That so unsettled the shepherd that he lowered his gun, which he had been aiming. Truder and the werewolf never again dared to steal sheep from Yarnit's enclosures. Here we have another story of... Coming from Common Farmer again, uh, in which we have somebody that is a werewolf stealing livestock. And interestingly enough, uh, he turns back into a human right in front of this guy, walks up to him and says, hey, you don't have to kill me. I'll leave your sheep alone. And so this story is a bit varied. It shows a little bit of a varying uh, nature to some of the stories we have. On, on werewolves in which, in, in this scenario, werewolves aren't necessarily scary. It's kind of a pest, right? Kind of a pain in the buns. Been trying to catch this werewolf the whole time. Finally, finally catches him. The guy says, "Hey, I'll uh, I'll stop. You know, eating your sheep as a werewolf." Uh, in this case, we're more than likely dealing with uh, what we would see as a lichen. There's, you know, there's no real. From a contemporary standpoint, there's no real way to 
pin down specifically uh, if they're talking about a werewolf or a lichen. They're going to call it a werewolf. The terms are going to be used interchangeably in these stories. What I find particularly fascinating about this example, though, and if we look at it closely, we see a couple of things. First off, we have the theme, of course, of the werewolf coming at night, preying on the livestock. Okay, but what we also have is this other, uh, this other part of the tradition, right? The gun with silver bullets. But what's particularly fascinating is that it's only and it's not until after the bull- the silver bullets are loaded into the gun that the werewolf takes note of the man, suggesting again there is this sort of otherworldly assumption attached to uh, werewolves or people that are afflicted with certain maladies that they might be supernatural, might have some preternatural senses, preternatural knowledge. And so in this, in this, we have a lot of those themes come together in this story in the Werewolf of Yarnitz, uh, the Rügensches Sagen und Märchen. Um, and it's quite fascinating to see all of it come together. And again, this is a German, this is a, another German uh, story. There's loads and loads of werewolf legends in Germany. Uh, and of course, we won't go to all of them. We're just going to hit some of the, the high points here. Now, in, in this next one, we have the Norddeutsche Sagen Märchen und Gebrauche, um, or the werewolf. Um, now, formerly, there, are pe- there were people who could turn themselves into wolves, according to legend, by putting on a certain belt, and a man in the vicinity of Steina, and this is a tale, an oral tradition from that area, had such a belt, and once he went away without locking it up, as was his custom, his young son came upon it, buckled the thing about himself, and instantly became a werewolf. He had the appearance of a, of a stacked pea straw and lumbled away heavily like a bear. When the people in the room saw what happened, they ran quickly and brought back the father. He arrived barely in time, undid the strap before the boy could do any damage. Afterward, the boy said that as soon as he put the belt on, he became so terribly hungry that he would have torn anything apart that might have gotten in his way. So let's take a look uh, closely at this story about about werewolves, and let's take a look at one of the overriding assumptions uh, in this story, right? In this particular story, we have a werewolf who, once the change takes over, becomes instantly ravenously hungry. He needs to feed immediately. And this story uh, has, has really nailed one of the primary concerns about werewolves. Uh, and it, and we'll, we'll circle back to the story of, from Yarnitz as well, because we're going to tie the two together. So in this story, we have a young boy who discovers his father's belt, uh, which happens to be magic, turns him into a werewolf. That's unclear where the father acquired such such an artifact. But what is clear in this tale is that he was negligent and allowed his young son uh, to acquire access to this powerful artifact. Once his son acquires access to this powerful artifact, he immediately loses control of his senses, and becomes a wild, ravenous beast. Once he is, once the malady is removed, that being the belt, the thing that was causing him to be afflicted, he immediately recounts of how he had no control over himself, how he was hungry, how he needed to feed immediately. Story in Yarnitz, we have a wolf who, we have a man who turns into a wolf by night, 
seemingly at, at will, but more than likely, uh, you know, if we look at the story closely, we can kind of see that maybe he doesn't really have a choice. And he does what when he turns into this beast? He immediately begins feeding on the livestock. So what two things can we gather from what, – what things can we gather from these two stories? Well, first off, the first thing that we can gather is one of the, one of the great concerns of this time period. Uh, with, every, with every story, there's a backstory. Uh, and in this scenario, uh, there is a concern. Uh, for why one wouldn't want to be a werewolf. Now, in the past, I've talked about vampires, and I've talked about the reason why people didn't want to be vampires. Uh, within the Slavic culture, the stories of vampires, which is where that comes from uh, specifically, at least as we know them, they come from a Slavic tradition. Uh, they were used as sort of a social check on people. Uh, they were used as a means of getting people to sort of get along, uh, to be courteous to others, to uh, not be destructive towards others' property, to be respectful of everyone, uh, and to maintain order. Uh, because you didn't want to become a, a vampire, because becoming a vampire meant you didn't have control over yourself anymore. You, would, you, could, eat any, you could eat any one of your relatives, uh, and this would be bad. Uh, you could be a general nuisance, a plague to anybody around you. And this same theme is ca- encapsulated within this story of the werewolf. The werewolves, they don't have a choice. They are what they are. They're cursed for whatever reason. They're afflicted for whatever reason. And they have no control over themselves. This is a very large fear. This is a very huge anxiety for people, uh, particularly in the Middle Ages, that you lose control of yourself. Losing control of yourself is huge, huge anxiety uh, for people during this time uh, in which these stories are being told. And this is the Middle Ages up until, up until the uh, 1800s with some of these stories. But we know now, today, we still have that anxiety, right, where I'm not in control. If I'm not in control, you know, anything bad, you know, bad things could happen. If I'm not in control of my life, I want to be in control of my life. I want to be able to make my own decisions. I want to have agency, right? I want to be able to control my urges, my desires, my needs. Uh, when you become a werewolf, you no longer can control these things. You are driven by what has you. And what has taken hold of you? This curse takes hold. You have no choice. By the light of the full moon, you become a ravenous beast who will eat, destroy anything in your path. This hints at a few things that concern people of this during this time. Number one, it, it definitely hints at, in particular, the need to remain in control of yourself. You must not lose control of yourself. This is a huge anxiety for people during this time, and it's no wonder that werewolf stories have persisted for so long because even today, control of ourselves, we still want to be able to make, our own, make conscious decisions, to be uh, our own person. But we take it a step further. This ravenous hunger, this need, this, this desire to feed, to destroy – uh, anything at any cost to satisfy the present. This is this highlights another anxiety within these communities. People who are greedy. Greed can destroy a community. We see that today. Greed destroys communities all the time. It destroys relationships. It destroys friendships. 
And this is a real anxiety that is highlighted by lycanthropy or werewolfism, whichever you want to slice, whichever way you want to slice it. Um, but this is a real anxiety that these people are experiencing. And it's no wonder that they have these stories and why they keep telling these stories. They serve as a reminder. This is what could happen if you lose control. This is what happens to people who become greedy. This is what happens to people who overreach, who don't care about the betterment of the community, right? Who are not looking out for everyone else. You're looking out for just you. Uh, in the case of this boy, we see right off the bat, he immediately says, once he gets freed of this affliction, thank goodness you helped me out. I was so hungry, I couldn't control myself anymore. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was losing my ability to control myself. And this is a huge, that, that, that would have been terrifying for this, for this audience that's listening to this story. Um, because they're they're thinking to themselves, oh my God, he lost control of himself. Oh no, like what what's what's going to happen? Uh, you know, he's not in control anymore. Who's calling the shots? You know, anything can happen. This it's a free for all now. Uh, and then we move to the next uh, aspect of it: the importance of respecting other people's property. What do we notice in these stories? These werewolves don't have any respect. These people that are being accused of being werewolves or being associated with lycanthropy are seen as those who don't care about the community and they don't care about other people's property or safety, right? Uh, these werewolves uh, devour people's livestock. They, de- they attack people. They wreck, they wreck your property. Uh, so these are real, these, these are real anxieties and probably, probably, these stories of werewolves function in much the same manner as the stories about witches and vampires do in that they become scapegoats for the things that go wrong around us, the things that are out of our control, these, the things that we would call acts of God when we call our insurance company, right? If a tree falls on your car, it's the werewolf's fault from jumping from limb to limb trying to eat the sheep across the ray from you and damn those werewolves and their inability to control themselves and how dare they hunt, you know, in your area. Um, You know, these, it sounds silly when I put it that way, but is it really all that silly that people that came before us uh, wanted to try to explain their world uh, or wanted to try to explain things they didn't understand and did so in in rather creative ways. If if we if we look at it, I mean, it's pretty creative, pretty creative story. Um, despite the fact that you know uh, being accused of being a werewolf uh, could prove fatal, uh, in so much as it could be fatal to be accused of being a witch or even a vampire. Um, but even so, you've got to uh, there's there is some some sense sense that you should be a little ad. At, you know, you gotta have a little admiration uh, for the imagination of these people. Uh, they are very intelligent uh, in and of themselves to have come up with such uh, crappy stories, really, uh, and stories that are not only interesting but serve to teach multiple lessons and persist to this day. Uh, which, you know, one thing that you can learn from, and one other thing you can learn from this is that good stories. They have staying power. They stick with you. Uh, they stay with you, and they grab hold, and they, they, they don't go away. They just keep getting told. They keep getting shared about. Um, and these werewolf stories are no exception. 
So we talked, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, some old stories about werewolves. And, and I'm going to share one more uh, because I think it's pertinent. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about um, the influence of werewolves and lycanthropy on film and uh, video games and the like. Uh, now, uh, this next tale uh, comes from 1854, uh, and it's called. It's just simply called The Werewolf. It's by Carl Lenker. Uh The Hessian farmer knows and fears the ravenous werewolf even today. This is a human whose shape has been transformed by putting on a belt, and the werewolf attacks everything that gets in his way and is especially dangerous for the herds. However, there is one way to destroy the belt's magic power. If one throws a knife, piece of shiny steel, over the werewolf, he will instantly be transformed into his human form and stand there completely naked. It is in the vicinity of Wolfhagen that there was a well-to-do woman of good parentage who almost every night would leave her house and roam the fields as a werewolf. Once a shepherd bravely approached the werewolf as it crept into an alder thicket, its appetite sated from eating uh, its choice from the herd. The shepherd, who had long pursued the werewolf, hoped to capture it. He threw his pocket knife over its head and neck, and immediately the woman was standing there naked before him. She implored to him to have mercy upon her and not to tell the story to anyone. Obviously, we have a written story, so he told The shepherd was highly surprised to see the well-known woman before him, and he promised to keep the event a secret. Nonetheless, within a few days, everyone knew about it, because of course they did. Um, And this, of course, the story is called uh, The Werewolf, for those of you looking for it, it's by Carl Lintner. It's also entitled The Deutsche Sagen und Sitten in Hessischen Gauen, for those of you who are particularly good with German. Um, Published by uh, Verleg von Oswald Bertram uh, in 1854. Uh, now, Carl Linkner has several werewolf legends that he collected, and many of these legends are part of a collection uh, done by various authors from Germany uh, in the late 19th century. Because it's during this time in Germany that there is a particular interest in collecting uh, folklore uh, and cultural in, in a lot of the uh, oral traditions and having them jotted down. So now we talked um, basically about the legends of werewolves and like it's where they come from. Uh, specifically in this scenario, um, we can see that uh, they've got really strong roots in Germany and in Central Europe, uh, and their roots can even be traced all the way over to Greece, which is pretty impressive. Uh, so let's take a look now at the influence of these critters on film. Now, obviously, when we think about monsters uh, in, in the sense of Hollywood or even in literature, uh, vampires and zombies, uh, they tend to take the cake, right? They tend to be on the top. Uh, and plain, oftentimes, second fiddle to them are werewolves. Uh, but werewolves have featured prominently in several uh, very uh, significant films. Um, well, I wouldn't say, well, I, I think I'd like to rephrase that maybe they're not necessarily significant, uh, but a few of these films are actually not bad, and one of them is actually quite groundbreaking. Uh, the, the one groundbreaking film that I'd like to point to uh, as, a, as a key example of how influential the story of werewolves has been 
uh, in our society, uh, how influential these oral traditions have been on today uh, and contemporary society as we know it. We have the American werewolf in London, uh, in which we have uh, perhaps one of the most impressive uh, scenes uh, in cinematic history where we witness the main character change uh, quite painfully into a werewolf. For those of you who have not seen American Werewolf in London, uh, you should probably watch it if you're a fan of the horror genre at all. If you like werewolves, uh, that movie is a tremendously well done uh, movie for its time, and it's really stood the test of time. Uh, the transformation scene in that film uh, is absolutely uh, an eye-opener, uh, but it definitely highlights a few of these anxieties that we've been talking about. This person has no choice, uh, and that is highlighted very much so in the American uh, in American Werewolf Goes to London, uh, or in London, in which the the man who is our main character is struggling uh, with with being a werewolf, uh, and he has no control over it. When night falls and the moon rises, he is transformed against his will. He becomes transfigured. His body contorts, he sprouts fur, his bones elongate and crack until he becomes this beast. Uh, And he goes on murderous rampage. Um, This is not the only, there are several uh, other examples that we can point to. Within uh, contemporary culture, and one right off the bat, perhaps is not... uh, uh, not particularly groundbreaking in so much as it is uh, particularly um, pertinent within popular culture is the Twilight series in which we have uh, both werewolves and vampires uh, coinciding together uh, at times fighting each other. Uh, but if we look at some more of the more iconic films, we of course can't uh, discount the 1941 The Wolfman uh, that really introduced um introduced us to werewolves on the big screen. Uh, And of course, the howling cannot be underestimated either as a particularly influential film, at least in terms of the horror genre. Werewolves appear prominently in the film Ben Helsing. Uh, They appear prominently in the Underworld series, and of course, Ginger Snaps. Um, there's, There's an entire film uh, dedicated to werewolves, uh, skinwalkers, and of course uh, the '80s fall movie, uh, 1985 Teen Wolf, uh, in which we have a young man uh, who, in the midst of hitting hitting a growth spurt and puberty, uh, in the uh, being a late bloomer in high school learns that his family's secret is that his family is a bunch of werewolves, that he himself is a werewolf, and that, you know, he can, he's got to keep himself in check uh, in order to maintain a grip on his sanity uh, and who he is. Uh, But let's take a look also now. uh, So we look at these films. uh, These films are pretty popular. Um, We we look at the the films such as The Howling. The Howling uh, films have a bit of a cult following, uh, but American Werewolf in London, uh, 1981 film, it uh, it did did pretty decent. Uh, it's rated pretty highly uh, by most critics, uh, and it um, and again, 
we look at the movie, uh, it, it budgeted $10 million, and it made $62 million at the, at the box office. It was pretty impressive. Uh, and it was released in the United Kingdom and the United States uh, and did pretty well. Um, for being such a low-budget film, it, it, it made six times what it cost to make the movie. Uh, and it's still uh, rated very highly today. I mean, you look at uh, critic sites today, you know, you've got uh, things such as uh, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, IMDb, Metacritic. Uh, they all rate it pretty highly uh, as one of the as, – as a premier movie within the horror genre. Now, the Howling uh, series, it kind of uh, – not some – you know, not, not quite as good, uh, at least. Uh, in the in in terms of criticism, uh, the original film, 1981, follows a television journalist played by a, the by the very famous and lovely D. Wallace uh, in the course of aiding the police in their arrest of a serial murderer, uh, and they discover some werewolf action. Now, the movie itself, uh, aside from starring D. Wallace, I love you, D. Wallace, um, its budget was $1.5 million, so kind of a small budget movie, but it, it still grossed $17.9 million. So what can we glean from this? Well, what we can glean from these two films is that werewolves are popular. People want to know, people want to see movies with werewolves in them. They're fascinated by these stories. They're fascinated by the concept of, of a werewolf, but they're also, what does it tell us about them? Why, why, is it, why is it that these things persist? These anxieties of a loss of control over oneself still exist. They're still relatable. Uh, and that's why these films stick around and why these stories stick around and become uh, incredibly popular. If you look at the Underworld series, which is perhaps a more recent uh, example, if you look at uh, the original, which is in 2003, uh, you know, obviously uh, it helps when Kate Beckinsale uh, is in the movie. Certainly doesn't hurt. For those of you interested in... Uh, you know, checking it out. It's got Kate Beckinsale. She's kind of a kind of an ass kicker uh, in the movie. She runs around killing lichens or werewolves, uh, and is accompanied by Scott Speedman. Uh, it's pretty highly rated, uh, except on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, where and Metacritic uh, they don't uh, you know they don't really like it. Uh, but it's uh, it's another one of those films. Uh, that is worth checking out if you're interested in werewolves. Um, and it's got several sequels. Uh, the movie itself uh, had a budget of around $22 million, and it grossed about twice that. It's about $51 million, close to, close to $51.5 million. Uh, is what it made back uh, the original film. So again, it just goes to show you that these movies, these films about werewolves, this, these con- this concept, these werewolf stories, 
they still entertain us. They still fascinate us. They still terrify us to this day, right? Uh, they and then of course uh, we have Van Helsing, uh, which is uh, you know the kind of crosses over with vampires, uh, much like Underworld does. We kind of have some crossover there, <clears throat> which is another fairly popular film. Uh, but what we see now, if we move forward, is let's move into literature. Now I talked about some of the stories collected uh, by the uh, by the young philosophers and young writers in Germany during the late. Uh, late 19th century as an attempt to sort of tap into the German kultur. Um, but there is significant literature on werewolves. Uh, you can look at Stephanie Meyer's uh, Twilight series if you're particularly interested in it. You can look at that. Uh, and see a little bit of, uh, see a, a kind of a contemporary take on werewolves. Uh, but there's also, but werewolves have been written about for ages by all sorts of authors. Stephen King wrote Cycle of the Werewolf in 1983. Um, let me dig back here. I'm trying to pull this one up. Uh, we have so we have him. We have a whole series by Patricia Briggs on werewolves. Werewolves, they, uh, they again, they highlight this. They highlight this anxiety within us. Um, you can also see, um, yeah, this whole series by by Patricia Briggs. You can uh, see werewolves appear prominently in the world of J.K. Rowling and the world of Harry Potter. They appear prominently there as well, as, mostly as uh, spooky uh, villains. Uh, but one professor. And then, of course, uh, the writings of Cassandra Clare, uh, perhaps a more contemporary example uh, with her show, uh, The Mortal Instruments, <clears throat> in her book series uh, by the same name. Werewolves appear prominently in, in her series as well. So again, Werewolves have become sort of entrenched in popular culture, uh, and we can attribute that to what they represent in our culture. They represent a loss of agency. They represent a lack of control, a, the wildness, the primal nature that exists within human beings, our capacity to destroy things, our capacity to create uh, or to turn into animals ourselves. Uh, and if we look at it from the standpoint of a more symbolic, um, from a more symbolic standpoint rather than a literal standpoint of it, um, we can see that you know, in terms of in, in terms of symbolism, turning into a beast uh, could mean that you not only lose control of yourself, but you act so awfully that you just reflect your nature you you do things uh, that are not humane um and and certainly uh, some of the crimes that werewolves are accused of of course devouring other people would be considered uh inhumane <laughs> right eating your neighbor is wrong uh don't do that don't eat your neighbors that's wrong some things you feel like you shouldn't have to say to your neighbors but you never know 
And so when we look at film, we can see that werewolves play a significant role in film and in literature. Uh, and there is some crossover within media and literature, of course, as there often is. Uh, but also, werewolves appear prominently in video games. Uh, because, of course, they would, right? In fact, there is a recent game release by the title Bloodborne. Very popular game right now, uh, in which um, your main character, your player, the, the player one, is allowed to play as a hunter whose job it is to hunt down werewolves. Uh, and these werewolves are people who are changing into uh, various bestial uh, sort of abominations that you must uh, put out of their misery. Uh, of course, um, werewolf games go back much further. There's Werewolf the Last Warrior, an NES game, um, Werewolves versus Vampires, um, PlayStation games. Uh, and they go on and on and on. Uh, of course, they appear in Harry Potter games as well. Uh, not surprising. Um, and, of course, popularly uh, in the game Skyrim, the Elder Scrolls series, and the Elder Scrolls series by Bethesda, uh, werewolves appear prominently uh, as uh, an entire faction in the game, which one can play. Uh, and incidentally, interestingly enough, uh, once in werewolf form, a person is out of, I mean, you, while you can control your character while they're in werewolf form, uh, one of the key facets of being a werewolf on Skyrim is to devour as many enemies as you can to maintain your health bar. Uh, thus encouraging this idea that werewolves, in fact, must not only sate themselves by eating uh, other people or and living off of them, uh, but also forsaking their humanity. Uh, this bestial nature that exists within us uh, can only exist when we forsake who we, when we forsake our humanity, when we turn our back on morality and on on what we know is right. Then we're able to give in to this more bestial nature, this more uh, savage and primal part of ourselves, and that really is the anxiety, right, of being a werewolf, the idea that you are not civilized anymore. You're an animal. You're, you're a monster, and you can't control it, and you have to eat other people. You have to, you have to destroy things, uh, and it's quite similar. There's, again, there's going to be a lot of correlation here between what we talked about with vampires, this idea that uh, these things are a plague upon humanity, right? They exist to torment us. Uh, to torment the na- the normal person uh, would never do these awful things, right? They would never do these terrible things, except when they would. They would totally kill people if they could. Um, but the good part of us says we would never do something like that. That's why these werewolves are so dangerous. They're they've got to be eliminated, right? They're they're a threat to everything we stand for, except when we don't stand for it. Uh, but that's not the point, right? Uh, these again. I want to really hammer it on these things. These stories highlight a very real anxiety that people experience and maybe not so much the anxiety of, Oh my God, tonight when the moon is full, I'm going to turn into a werewolf and I'm going to be barking at the moon like a madman. I have to rip all my clothes off and 
run out there and hunt down some sheep and maybe kill a few of my neighbors. Uh, it's going to be awful. It's going to be crazy. Um, but the real anxiety that I think we can point to is a loss of control. Um, we've all had moments in our lives, right, where we lose control. We get angry, right? We, we, we turn a blind eye to what we know is right because we're upset about something. And I think we can learn a little something from this. This is, this is a perfect time for us current events. And I love it when, I love it when a plan comes together, as Hannibal Smith would say from the A-team. I love it. I love it when I can tie what I'm talking about to current events. And you're going to probably say, Dallas, what do werewolves have to do with current events? Well, we've seen a lot of people that are kind of out of control out there right now, right? People that are just running amok, doing all sorts of crazy stuff. They've, it's, it's almost as if they've completely turned their backs on what they know is right to do openly they know is wrong. Now, we've seen people over the last couple of days being incredibly destructive, uh, getting in screaming matches with one another, and even assaulting one another. And in one case, unfortunately, we had the, un- we had the misfortune of someone actually losing their life uh, this week. And I certainly don't want to make light of that. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, I am, in fact, referring to the incident in Charlottesville. And I am, in fact, referring uh, to what's going on in our society today. We have a whole part of our society today that seems lost, that seems like they are giving in to this more bestial nature. Right? They're becoming hardened towards, towards decency and kindness. They're becoming very primal, very vicious, very savage individuals. And they're turning their backs. They know is right. They're letting their passions take over. Uh, for those of you who don't know, and I, and I want to tie this back to what we're talking about. For those of you who don't know, let me enlighten you on what a major concern letting your passions get the best of you was for people who came before us, particularly in the Middle Ages, uh, where many of these werewolf stories we're talking about uh, got their start. And then even later on, uh, during the period of enlightenment, in which the later stories we talked about come from, there's a huge emphasis, particularly amongst uh, the educated. There is a certain way in which you must conduct yourself. A certain level of courtesy must be given to people, to your peers, to your betters, and to those that you would consider beneath you. And there is a certain code of conduct that is expected of people during this time. Uh, and as it goes in every time, there are rules. There are certain codes of conduct. And one code of conduct that was particularly emphasized, particularly in Europe during the Middle Ages and then later during the Enlightenment, again, uh, and the Romantic period, again, in an attempt to sort of retap into the, some of these quote-unquote medieval ideas, we have a real emphasis on not letting passions get the best of you, not letting your emotions take over, being in control of yourself at all times, not letting 
your anger and your emotions, your other emotions, get the best of you. So you don't make some foolish bonehead maneuver. You don't do something stupid, in other words. Now, for the people during the Middle Ages, particularly those of the noble classes, this was huge. Didn't do this. Noblemen were not supposed to get angry. Uh, and, and if you were a man uh, in the Middle Ages, in ge- just in general, you weren't supposed to just fly off the handle and go crazy. You just didn't do that. You didn't go. You didn't get. Uh, you, you didn't get all angry and you know throw a fit, start yelling at everybody. And people would have said, "You're crazy. What the hell's wrong with you? Get get it together, man." Uh, you know, people would have just looked at you like you were a madman. What is wrong with this person? Like, don't they get it? Like, you're supposed to be mad on the inside and and be courteous to everybody. What the hell's wrong with them? Uh, keep control of yourself. Come on, get get a hold of yourself, man. You're acting like a child. Um, people back during people that came before us during this time, it was incredibly important. Appearances were everything. Uh, you, if you flew off the handle like people did today, or do today, if you did that back then, nobody would take you seriously. You might get you killed. Somebody might just, you know, might you might lose everything you have. Somebody might come in and say, ah, this guy's crazy. Uh, yeah, he doesn't need to be in charge of anything. He's crazy. Uh, we can't have this. Uh, he can't be reasoned with. He's crazy. He's got no control over himself. You, you say one thing to him he doesn't like, he gets mad, goes crazy, starts yelling at everybody, starts talking about how everybody else is evil but him. Well, we can't have that. Guy's unstable. We don't want him running things. You can see why. Uh, we time, you can see why I say that the fear of lycanthropy, the fear of being a werewolf, is not just this fear that, oh, my gosh, I'll turn into a wolf creature and I'll have to eat human flesh by, you know, by the light of the moon or I'll have to eat somebody's sheep. No, 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 no. The real concern is I'm going to lose control of who I am. I am going to let this bestial, this primal part of myself take over and lose everything. My reputation will be ruined. Everything that I am as a person will be destroyed by these emotions, by this malady that is afflicting me. You can see why this is an anxiety for them. You have to be in comp- control of yourself. You have to comport yourself like a gentleman or a, or, or a lady, whatever. You don't want to be a werewolf in this context because – Werewolves aren't in control. Werewolves are embar- will embarrass your family, right? You, you're running around. You're naked. You're attacking people's sheep. I mean, now that just gets you arrested like or shot at. Both back then and just probably uh, got you executed. But you can see, again, I really want to hammer this home. This is the real concern with lycanthropy. This is a real concern with, with werewolf myths. This is what people were worried about. And it really does factor into how we are today. Uh, because if you think about it now, uh, people kind of just fly off the handle, right? You, you get into it with somebody now, uh, and they come back five minutes later, and they, they shoot you. Like, that's the society we live in today. Uh, the society we live in today, our ancestors who came before us, uh, who, you know, we, we, we scoff at our ancestors, right? We, they make up stories about werewolves and, and angels and demons and gods and 
what have you. And we say, look at those ancient people. They don't know anything. They just make stuff up, right? We know better than them. But do we really? Do we know better? That's the real question that we can ask ourselves in particular when we look at stories like that of uh, these werewolf stories, for example. Do we really know better? What what success then do we think exists with stories meant to keep people in check, meant to keep people from flying off the handle and losing their composure and embarrassing themselves and embarrassing other people and, and causing general unrest in society? If these stories helped our ancestors keep people from acting like fools, from causing unrest, from from creating situations that were not only unacceptable for for the time, but also uh, creating uh, conflicts that that were hard to resolve, conflicts that would put them at odds with one another, uh, and people that and you don't want to be at odds with people. Uh, in the Middle Ages, because you're probably related to them. In the Middle Ages, all those royal families are related. They're intermarried. So you definitely don't want to go to war with, with your neighbors because you're probably, somebody you know is probably married to them, and that would just be no bueno. But when we look at these stories, we can see that they are not just meant for entertainment. They po- They sit as a warning to the society that created them, and they sit as this, Reminder that if you lose control of yourself, you become an animal. Turn your back on, on, be, on what it means to be a decent human being, and you do so for your own you know, selfish, selfish uh, reasons. You let your emotions get the better of you. You let your hot temper uh, take over. We can see where this would be concerning. But we can also see the significance of these stories. The stories, the legends of werewolves and lichens, they're more than just a story to entertain. They're a lesson to be learned from. And that lesson is, if we give in to the darker parts of ourselves, to the, to the deepest, darkest desires of who we are as people, and we disregard what we know to be right, and we disregard what's best for us and our communities, that there will be conflict, that there will be unrest, that there will be violence, that there will be chaos. But by learning to rein in these emotions, to control these urges, to suppress these feelings of anger that we sometimes have, these feelings of rage, we can prevent that from happening. And really, when we think about it, how, how cool is that of a story, right? How great of a lesson is that, that we can still take a look at these stories that were meant not only as a sort of societal check, but also as a form of entertainment, because keep in mind, our ancestors, they weren't stupid. They knew 
they knew in many cases that werewolves weren't real. But it didn't stop them from telling some damn good stories. And it didn't stop them from trying to teach future generations a lesson with their stories. And the fact that werewolves and lichens of these things and this whole, this whole tension that exists between being in control of yourself and not being in control of yourself, this fight between the virtuous man and the primal bestial man, this fight between the good within us and the evil within us, all being highlighted in, in, in its collection of tales from so far back. It's not only fascinating and impressive, I think it's also vital. I think it's important that we take a look at these myths and we're treating all mythology and all story and all legends as, as just stories. And I'd love to, I'd love to hear some people's uh, opinion on this, but I think we need to consider that these stories do serve a purpose, that they do have value in our society um, because they not only tell us a great story that is, in fact, entertaining. I mean, we can see the far reaches of werewolves in popular culture. Uh, I've just listed so many examples of, of them in film, literature, and video games, all, all mediums that people today enjoy and have enjoyed for quite a while now. But I would love to know from other people out there, if any, if any of you guys are out there listening, I'd love to hear from some of you. Of course, the call-in number is 718-508-9883. But I think it's important that we look at these stories as more than just stories. Yes, they are stories. Yes, they do function as a form of entertainment. Yes, they do. Yes, in some cases they can fo- function as a, as a, you know, a lesson uh, in, in maybe, you know, courtesy and manners and in the way that one should conduct themselves, a lesson in morality, maybe even. But I think there's some significance to these stories, a cultural significance we can attach to these things. And that cultural significance is that we as people have always known that we needed to keep ourselves in check. We've always known that there is a tendency within all of us to lose control. We know we are so aware of our humanness. And we've always been aware of our humanness. And what, I, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by our humanness? We are so aware of what we are, of who we are. We know that we are not perfect. We are aware of our imperfections. And no, I'm not going to take you down the holy path. Okay, so don't, don't worry. But we are so aware of our shortcomings as people. We are so aware of where our failings lie, of what pitfalls exist that can bring us down and keep us from our potential. It's stunning how aware we are, how self-aware we actually are. And sometimes without even realizing we're teaching us, we're teaching, we're doing it. And really, that's masterful storytelling, but it's also masterful teaching. It really does highlight the intelligence of people, but not just people, but those who come before us. So many times you see in so many programs, people talk about 
they, they almost insult the people that came before us because they didn't have the technological advancements that we had. But we tend to forget that we came from those people, and so if we hadn't had them here, we'd never be here. So we wouldn't even be having this conversation if our ancestors hadn't been around. Yet, sometimes we, we notice this push within programming. And you know what? I am going to do it. I've been wanting to do this for a very long time. I am going to call out specifically the History Channel. Uh, when I turn that channel on, guys, sometimes I'm absolutely disgusted with the way that they talk about the people that have come before us. They treat our ancestors from all over the world as if they were the dumbest people that have ever walked this earth, as if they were stupid, they have no kind of concept of anything, as if they sort of just muddled through history, got lucky here and there, and figured, figured stuff out along the way, uh, but they're not as good as we are because we know better because we're modern and we know things. Because we've got cell phones and we've got TVs and they didn't have them, so obviously they weren't as smart as us. When we look back, and I, and I don't want to get into a whole thing with, you know, the, the impressive uh, feats of humanity throughout the ages, uh, in particular, you know, architecturally, uh, culturally, and even technological advancements uh, that people had that were far beyond what they should have been able to do during their time based on the resources that they had at their disposal. But because there's numerous examples and we'd be here all day. But I do want to hint, I do want to talk just a little bit about, you know, the importance of these stories that we've been telling ourselves about ourselves all these years. You know, we treat these stories about werewolves and vampires and goose, ghosts and go, ghoulies and, and goblins and elves as though they're just foolishness. We, we treat the old religions that have come before us, the old systems of belief, as though uh, they are superstition. And I absolutely hate the word superstition. Suggests that the people that believe in these things are stupid. When in reality, if we think about it from a logical point of view, if we take a step out of our, out of our comfort zone and think about the stories people have been telling, telling the, each generation, and we, we think about it from a logical point of view, they were explaining their world in the best way that they knew how. Affirmation that they had, they were explaining the world to themselves and to the other people around them in the way that they could. The way that they could articulate it is how they explained it. So these stories and the various beliefs that people had throughout the ages are not are not symptomatic of being are not symptomatic of ignorance they do not demonstrate that our ancestors who came before us are stupid because they made up stories about werewolves or vampires these stories served a purpose they coined these stories they came up with these stories for a reason and it isn't the stupid ancient aliens nonsense that they've been feeding people for the last you know five 10 years that crap show has been out. Our ancestors weren't talking about aliens when they were coming up with these stories. They were teaching 
they were using the knowledge that they had to create stories to teach moral lessons to the people around them. And if we look at the cultures who are coming up with these stories and we look at their society as a whole, we can see the reason for the stories. If we look at the time that they live in, we look in the sort of society they are, what they, what they depend on, what sorts of things they value as a culture, we can see that these stories have a value beyond just being a good story. Are werewolves fascinating? Are lichens, lichens fascinating? Yes, they are. They are a fascinating story. They are a good story, but they are much more than that. They serve as a lesson. There is a lesson to be found there. And that lesson I have already boldly stated is that these stories highlight an anxiety that existed for these people. And that, that anxiety is to be out of control, to live in a society where we have people who are not in control of themselves, who have no moral compass, who cannot control their urges and impulses, and it devastates the people around them. Where have we seen in our society, in our contemporary society right now, where can we see these same behaviors right now? I can tell you where we can see it. We have a massive epidemic in our country right now and have had in many parts of our country for years with drugs, right? It is what it is. We have, why, why do we have this problem? Is it because those people are stupid? No, it's not because they're stupid. They're just as intelligent as anybody else. We're too quick to write people off as stupid. So why is it that we have these problems that we have? It's because we have lost sight of what we should be talking about. What we should be talking about, what we should be returning to, if we're going to take anything away from the past, we should be taking away the lessons that they've been teaching, that they had been teaching each other all along, and the lessons we've been teaching each other, or we should be teaching each other right now. Courtesy is one of those things we should be teaching, but also self-control, moderation. Being in control of yourself means being able to cut yourself off, not overindulging in the pleasures around you. And no, 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 it doesn't have to be a religious thing. It could be a health thing. When we look at these stories that I highlighted within these collections. These people that are that are being accused of being werewolves, these stories with werewolves involve people who have no control over their impulses. They will eat, they will devour everything around them. Because they don't have they don't know how to moderate themselves. They don't know how to limit themselves. All they know is that they want, 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 need, 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 and they're gonna take, take take because they weren't they're not being shown that that's not the way of going about things that that's not the way to do things now does that mean that every single person in the world needs to know about werewolves and lichens and does everybody in the world need to know that that's what this what these stories can teach us not necessarily there's other ways of going about it 
You know, there's other ways of teaching people moderation. There's other ways of teaching people how to be in control of their emotions to keep themselves under control. There's other ways of teaching people considerate of those around them. But how awesome of a story, how awesome is it that people before us were not only, not only had the same problem, we have, you know, granted, you know, they're not maybe dealing with, you know, in, in the context of drugs, perhaps, you know, probably not uh, at this time, but they still had to deal with greed. They still had to deal with people who didn't, who didn't put the community first, who didn't put the needs of people important around them before their own needs. They only thought about themselves, right? They didn't put the betterment of the people around them uh, they didn't give it a second thought. They just thought about what they could have in that moment. And they took what they thought they needed or what they thought they wanted in that moment without any consideration for anybody else. No matter if it damaged other people's property or hurt them in the long run, they still just took what they wanted. <clears throat> we still have that problem today. We have a lot of people today, and they don't want to give anything back. They want to take everything. They want everything. We have people today who have no control over themselves. They don't care about being in control. They want to run amok. They want to be running around doing what they want to do because they want, they deserve, they desire, they want, need, desire, and it's all, it all belongs to them. It all needs to be theirs. And why can't they have it? And why can't they have it right now? Now, you know, some people are going to be critical of this, and they're going to say, Dallas, well, we live in a consumer-driven economy. And what's that got to do with werewolves, Dallas? What's it got to do with it? Well, if you've been paying attention, you'll notice that I've already told you what it's got to do with it. These stories, these stories about werewolves, tell us about people who turned their back on what made them human. And what made them human was their ability to control themselves. What made them human was their ability to be reasonable with other people and to be considerate of other people. Once they became beasts, they didn't care about anything except feeding themselves. That is the lesson that we can take away from today, from lichens and werewolves. That is the lesson that we can learn from these stories that our ancestors have left us. And now that I've sufficiently beat this wolf to death, I'm going to give you guys some stuff you can go look at. Because I'm just feeling generous today. I am feeling on fire today. And if anybody wants to call in and challenge me, you go right on ahead. I'm I'm waiting. I, I am the, the call-in number is 718-508-9883. You can call in. I'm going to get some get some stuff for you guys. Hold back up. So I kind of went ad-lib there for a minute. Like to to do that sometimes. So guys we talked about the Battle of Teutoburg, and I really think this is something you guys might be interested in looking at. Um, you get to see some of the cool stuff that uh, <clears throat> the Berserkers were capable of, specifically. Uh, you might want to take a look at Charles uh, River 
editors, The Battle of Teutoburg Force, The History and Legacy of the Roman Empire's Greatest Military Defeat. Uh, you can also look at um, Rome's Greatest Defeat, uh, Massacre in the Teutoburg Force by Adrian Murdoch. Things, things, stuff. Um, you can take a look at uh, Curiosities of the Indo-European Tradition and the and Folklore uh, by Walter K. Kelly. And which which is also which is also a great start by the way for those of you uh looking forward looking for um books on werewolves uh now the german sources i've already mentioned them but i'll mention them again uh so um you can look at uh, <clears throat> you can look at karl linker's uh deutsche sagen und sitten in Hesheke Gowan, uh, which is in the Ver- which is in Verlag Oswald Bertram's book uh, collection, um, you should just be able to look that up. Just put it in to Google; it'll pop up. Or you can just type in "The Werewolf" by Carl Linker. His last name is L Y N C K E R. First name is spelled with a K, not a C, because he's very German. Carl was spelled with a K back in the day. Um, you can also take a look at uh, the the same uh, the story by uh, A. Kuhn and W. Schwartz, um, Norddeutschen Sagen Märchen und Gebrauchen. Uh, it's from Leipzig and Brock, uh, F. A. Brockhaus's collection. Uh, you can type it into Google. Again, you can find it. It's easy to find. Uh, and for those of you interested in looking at the Morbach monster, there is actually a website dedicated uh, to that uh, story that I was telling you guys about. Um, I can just pull it back up here. Uh, if you go to ilovewerewolves.com. You can find a plethora of stories, um, and they're in English, which is good news for you guys. Uh, but you can find a plethora of stories um, that have been published. Uh, some of them are old stories that have been around for a long time, and some of them are new. Um, some of these are articles uh, that people have published about local stories uh, to their area, which is also kind of fascinating. Um, but you can look at the Moorbach monster, the werewolf in Wittler, Germany, uh, and get sort of a, a lowdown on the story that I was telling you about that uh, Napoleonic age soldier uh, who turned into a werewolf and was uh, summarily executed. Uh, so all stuff worth looking at. Guys, that is all that I've got to talk about today. I know we kind of we kind of went uh, we, we kind of went a ways together there. We we trekked together. You guys stuck it out with me. Very happy about it. Guys, talking about zombies. Something to be really excited about, guys. Something that's going to be really fun. Zombies 
is next week we're going to talk about uh, their influence on popular culture uh, because they are very influential. We'll talk. We're going to be tracing their origins, their roots back to Haiti uh, and some other places as well. Uh, but we'll talk about the associations with zombies and voodoo uh, to a little bit to a little degree. Uh, probably won't get too too terribly hung up on it, but we will get into it a little bit, and we will talk about. Uh, the tremendous impact that zombies have had on the film industry today because they are a massive, massive hit with, with, with people today. So that's all I've got for you guys today. Thanks for tuning in to the Bareback Facts. As always, I am your host, Dallas Duclo. And, of course, you can catch me and Teddy the Bear Tate every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern time for Straight Football Talk, and that includes this Sunday. So see you guys then. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.